growing in God's Word and learning how to take up our cross and follow Jesus. This is Crosswalk with Pastor Clay Stevens from Cross Culture Church in Raleigh. You may spend more at Christmas, but there is no more important holiday than what we celebrate today. What is the single most important question in the history of the world? Certainly there are plenty of important things we'd like to have the answers to, but by far the most important question that has ever been asked is, did Jesus Christ rise from the dead? The answer to that question not only impacts our now, it impacts our eternity. It is what happened in the tomb, or didn't happen, that everything hinges on. Hello and welcome to this special edition of Crosswalk. It's Resurrection Sunday, or as most of the world knows it, Easter. For more than 2,000 years, the church has been celebrating this day as the day that Jesus Christ conquered death and rose from the grave. As we continue to work our way through the book of Mark in our series, Jesus, the Real Action Hero, we're going to hear Pastor Clay talk about the message of Jesus that his disciples are commanded to spread. The command to take this message out is yours. You've been given this charge and there's no skirting around it. The command is yours to go and to deliver this message. Of course, included in that message is the belief that Jesus rose from the dead. As Pastor Clay is going to explain, it's not an exaggeration to say that all of Christianity hangs on the resurrection. But is it true? Obviously, we believe that it is. And Pastor Clay is going to present some arguments today for the resurrection that are hard to ignore. Here's Pastor Clay. Through the book of Mark in 2014 in this series entitled Jesus, the Real Action Hero. And no action that Jesus uh, accomplished or performed is greater than the one that we celebrate and the one that we commemorate today. His triumph over the grave. His triumph over death. It is the reason why the church exists. It is the reason why we are here today. It is the reason that we have have not only life, but life more abundant. It is the purpose of life. It is our direction. It is our peace. It is our hope. It is our joy. It is the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. The question is, or certainly can be asked, how do people feel about that in this modern time? It's 2014. How do do people, what are people's thoughts about... uh, Easter and the resurrection and and that sort of thing. Watch this video. I don't know anything about it. Really, nothing? Never been to church in my life, mate. I'm telling you the truth. Yeah, so I don't don't really know what it means. What's Easter got to do with church? Well, it's part of Christianity and stuff, right? Bunnies. (laughs) <laughs> I know the, the um, it has to do with Jesus and all that, but I'm not really religious, so I just think of bunnies. <laughs> do you think that um, the message of Easter is still relevant in today's society? No, I don't even know what Easter is for. <laughs> I don't. <laughs> no idea. So no, I don't think so. I don't know what the Easter message is. Um, the message that Christ died for our sins and suffered for people to be forgiven. I don't believe that. Uh-huh. Used to look for eggs when I was a kid. That's about it. How about a spiritual aspect of it? I don't really see any spiritual aspect in it. 
think symbolically, yeah. I don't think literally. I mean, it just depends on who you talk to. You know, anything that has to do that's so monumental in any religion is still important, I think. So how does that work for you? And, well, I think I'm a spiritual person, but I think there's a difference between being religious and spiritual. And I think religion is a social and political function, and for some people it helps them find their spirituality. But I don't necessarily think everybody needs that in order to be spiritual. It's a very simple way of life. I mean, Jesus said, it's, uh, if a child uh, should be able to understand my message, there's nothing really to read into it. So what does it mean to you? Uh, it means that someone died who very clearly illustrated the way that we should live if we want to attain a life after death that is um, heaven or nirvana or whichever one you want to call it means whatever I'm going through is not that bad. That's something people have to realize, is that the Christ was drug out in the streets. You know, the Son of God was drug out in the streets, beaten down, you know what I mean, uh, over and over and over. And I think people need to realize that it wasn't a pretty picture. How does that work for you? How does it work for me? I, well, I've walked without Christ and I've walked with Christ, and I think that... There's, there's just there's no comparison. So do you think that through Christ doing what he did that you can have a new life? I know I can. That's the only thing that's left. That's the only thing that's left in my life. I know he died for me. I believe that. And I'll keep on believing it the rest of my life. I don't have to make those sacrifices. I don't have to feel that pain. You know what I mean? And pretty much it's all because he did it. No one will ever do it again. You know what I mean? No one will ever do it again. As I said a moment ago, the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the most significant uh, action that, uh, that we could possibly commemorate or celebrate today. Now, if you're thinking, well, what about the cross? That was important as well. Of course, that's true. In essence, there, there are two sides of the same coin. You, you can't talk about the cross without talking about the empty tomb, and, and you can't talk about the empty tomb without talking about the cross. They are forever linked as his greatest action. Will Brown sent me some statistics yesterday uh, on a survey that was conducted by the Barna Research Group uh, dealing with, with people's opinions today about what all Easter or Resurrection Sunday is all about. Uh, according to Barna Group, 42% of Americans said that the meaning of Easter was the resurrection of Jesus or that it signifies Christ's death and return to life. 42%, you say, well, that's not too bad. Well, but that's almost 60% that apparently did not make that connection. One out of every 50 adults, that's 2% of those surveyed, said that they would describe Easter as the most important holiday of their faith. That means 98% of those surveyed would not consider uh, Easter as the most important holiday uh, for their religious beliefs. Can I say this to you? If you happen to be here and you're a follower of Jesus Christ, and you, and you may not be, but if you're here and you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you may spend more at Christmas, that, but there is no more important holiday than what we celebrate Amen. today. 
Um, mosaics, who are a term used to refer to the people between the ages of 18 to 25, were the least likely age segment to say Easter is a religious holiday. Only 58% of them even recognized it as a religious holiday. If you have your Bibles with you, please open them to Mark chapter 6. We, as I said, have been working our way through the book of Mark, and last week we looked at uh, the, the first part of Mark 6 where Jesus prepares to send his disciples out in his name. Last week, we focused on uh, the faith lesson, really, that Jesus was trying to teach them and what he was telling them that they should carry with them, which, which wasn't much. But today, we're focusing on the actual event where he, where he gives them the last instruction as they're being sent out. The text is on the screen as well. We're in Mark chapter 6. We're in verses 10 through 13. And we are truly grateful that you're here today. As I said, last week we were looking as, as he summoned the 12 and he began to send them out. He began to give them instructions, uh, telling them what they, what they could or couldn't take. And it was virtually nothing, no, no food, no clothing, uh, or one, one set of clothing, just a, a staff and, and the shoes that they had on. And then in verse 10, it says, And he said to them, Wherever you enter a house, stay there until you leave town. Any place that does not receive you or listen to you, as you go out from there, shake the dust off the soles of your feet for a testimony against them. They went out and preached that men should repent. And they were casting out many demons and were anointing with oil many sick people and healing them. Here's the first idea that I want you to get your mind around this morning, and it is this. Followers of Jesus have a message to stand and deliver. As I said, last week, uh, Jesus is, is preparing them to go out. He's telling them what they could and, and couldn't carry with them. And, the, and the, the crux of the message seems to be that I want you to learn how to, how to walk by faith. I want you to learn how to trust in me as you go out and do these things. And you're going to have to have to learn to do that. Today, in verse 10, as he picks it up, it, it's, it's really time to start, start doing this. Remember, Jesus had told them, all the way back in Mark chapter 1, Jesus had told the disciples that he was going to make them fishers of men. It was time for them to start casting their nets. And the reference in verse 10, watch this now, he, where he tells them, wherever you enter a house, stay there until you leave town seems to be connected to the lesson that he was teaching them last week. In other words, last week he was telling them, uh, don't carry anything with you, just the clothes you've got on, your sandals and, and a stick, no food, no water, no anything like that. You just go and depend on me. In, in this instance, in verse 10, he seems to be saying to them, don't, don't be concerned about where you're going to lay your head. That's not the main purpose of why I'm sending you. That's not the point of what this is all about. The main purpose, what this is all about, is the message. It is the message that matters. Don't get caught up in the food you're going to eat. Don't get caught up in, in where, well, where am I going to stay tonight? Or have I made reservations at the Holiday Inn? Are we booked? You know, don't worry about any of that stuff because ultimately it is the message that matters. And so they are charged to go out with this message. And where they lay their heads is, is something that 
just is, they're just going to have to trust God about. Now, listen, I know this is going to sound kind of strange probably in our culture where we have security systems and floodlights and 24-hour surveillance and loaded guns and locked doors, but, but it used to be customary back then. And by the way, you will still find it in certain cultures in the world today, but it, it was not uncommon back then for someone to take in a total stranger that, that, that came through, a traveler that was traveling through. It was not uncommon for a, for a person to take in a total stranger so that they would have a place to sleep rather than have to sleep out in the elements. I know that sounds strange to us, but it, it, it was fairly common back then. And the point, again, seems to be it, what you eat or whether you stay in a fine home or a humble home or no home at all. Don't worry about any of that stuff that ultimately it is the message that matters. And so the takeaway, you ready? The takeaway for followers of Jesus, if you are here and you would profess to be one, the takeaway for you and me is this. The command is yours. The command to take this message out is yours. You've been given this charge. You've been given this command. And there's no skirting around it. There's no way to... The the, the command is yours to go and to deliver this message. And I know, I know, I know, I know, I know what we end up sometimes, right? Well, I, you know, I... I'm, I'm 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 not sure what to say I know we have our fears, right? And I, 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 I don't want to mess it up. I've heard people say that. Some people said that. I, I, I just don't want to mess it up. Listen, if the Bible is true, and obviously at Cross Culture we believe that it is, but if the Bible is true, then a person without a relationship with Jesus Christ is separated from God. That means that they can experience no, no ultimate God kind of love in their life. No unconditional love, no true joy and contentment in their life. Not really. They may masquerade, they may try lots of stuff in the world, but if the Bible is correct and a person without a relationship with Jesus Christ is separated from God, then they cannot experience the the things that God desires for them to experience in their life. And when this life is over, however long or short it is, if the Bible is true, they will spend eternity in hell. You you don't want to mess it up? How, how much worse do you think you can make it for them? Do you understand? The command is ours to take this message. They were charged with it. They knew that they had to do it. And it was what they were going to have to, to respond to do. It was a faith walk. They were going to have to step out and do it. But it clearly was their command. And the command is still ours today. Listen. Myriads. So many passages of scriptures that we could look at. But I've got to show you a few this morning, some of them that keep me awake at night. Let's begin in Ezekiel uh, chapter 3, verse 18. When I say to the wicked man, this is God speaking, when I say to the wicked man, you will surely die and you do not warn him or speak out to warn the wicked from his wicked way that he may live, that wicked man shall die in his iniquity. He's deserving of it. it. It's his sin. But his blood I will require at your hand. Listen, this, this is a common theme with God and the prophet Ezekiel. Look at uh, Ezekiel 33, verse 6. But if the watchman sees the sword coming and does not blow the trumpet, right? What, what, kind, what watchman would do that? Who 
would not warn that the enemy is coming? If the watchman sees the sword coming and does not blow the trumpet and the people are not warned and a sword comes and takes a person from them, he is taken away in his iniquity. Again, he's, but his blood I will require from the watchman's hand. Again, in in verse 38, verse 33, chapter 33, verse 8, essentially restates what he said in chapter 3. When I say to the wicked, a wicked man, you will surely die, and you do not speak to warn the wicked from his way, that wicked man shall die in his iniquity, but his blood I will require from your hand. Do you understand, folks? Is Is that connecting with you? That there is some type of responsibility for you and me with this command? This is God, God is, this is God speaking through the prophet and he's saying, listen, if they die in their sin, they're getting what they deserve, they're sinners. But if, if I've spoken and you've not told them this, you've got a responsibility in this. I have a responsibility in this. How about this one? Uh, maybe you've read this one, Matthew chapter 28. Most people refer to it as the Great Commission. Jesus came and told his disciples, I have been given all authority in heaven and on earth. Therefore, go and make disciples. It's actually a, a, a aorist tense in the Greek, the word go. It, it, Jesus just assumes. It, it literally would be rendered having gone. You're, you're going to go out, right? Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Teach these new disciples to obey all the commands I have given you And be sure of this, I am with you always to the end of the age. Go. Blood is on your hands. Go. How about this one? Acts chapter 1. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest part of the earth. Here, there, and everywhere. That's the way we say it here at Cross Culture. You're going to go here, there, and everywhere. Fulfilling this. How about Paul's words to the church in Romans chapter 10? How then will they call on him whom they have not believed? Do you understand this this rhetorical question? How how are they going to respond to a person they've never even heard of? How will they believe in him whom they've not heard? How will they hear without a preacher? And by the way, it doesn't just mean the guy that stands up here. It means a proclaimer. Anybody that would go out and proclaim, whether it's, whether it's in your high school or your middle school or your workplace or your neighborhood, anyone that would go out and pro- proclaim. How, how will they believe in him whom they've not heard? And how will they hear without a preacher? And how will they preach unless they are sent? Just as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring news of good things. Do you see this inescapable command that is yours? If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, listen, one more, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, look at this. Listen, Listen to these words. God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. That's what he came to do, right? That's He came to reconcile the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. And he has committed to, what's that next word? What's that little word right there? Us. Come on, say it. To who? To us. That's right. And he has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. Uh, I I remember this evangelist guy I used to uh, know years ago. Uh, He said whenever he traveled anywhere on a plane... Uh, anytime he didn't, didn't want to talk, he's just too exhausted, too tired. Somebody sitting beside him said, well, what do you do? Because that usually goes on an airplane. What do you do? Uh, he said anytime he was exhausted and tired and just, just wasn't up to talking, he would say, I'm a Baptist preacher. And that would, that would, be, the end of the, and that would be the end of the conversation. But when, he, but when he was up for it, when he wanted to talk, he would say, I'm an ambassador for a king. 
Well, how many times do you sit beside an ambassador on an airplane? Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ as though, watch this, as though God were making an appeal through us. God is making his appeal through us. We beg you on behalf of Christ to be reconciled to God. Because he made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Listen, we could go on and on and look at so many passages of Scripture, but I think you get the point. The command is yours. The command is mine. The command is ours. And my prayer in 2014 is that you and I will commit to take this command as seriously as it is serious. Because it is serious because eternal destinies are at stake here, ladies and gentlemen. That's the whole point of why Jesus said, don't worry about what you take this and that. And don't worry about where you're going to lay your head. Because all of that stuff is temporal. Food to eat and where you sleep at night, all that stuff is temporal. All that stuff is material. All that stuff is physical. And yes, it's real needs, right? But Jesus was sending them and us out with a message that was of eternal value. It met an eternal need. And ladies and gentlemen, eternal trumps temporal every single time. So the command is yours. Oh, but, uh, but, but what, what, if they, what if they don't want to listen to me? Let me just go ahead and put your mind at ease about that one. Most people will not want to listen to you. After years of trying to share my faith, after knocking on hundreds, perhaps thousands of doors, after giving out hundreds, perhaps thousands of iVite cards, after probing and looking for opportunities and conversations to open uh, some message about the gospel, after trying to break through to neighbors and, and co-workers in places where I have, I have worked in the past, after preaching countless numbers of sermons to countless numbers of people without a relationship with Jesus Christ, I can definitively declare to you that most people will not want to listen to you. But what does that have to do with obedience? The command is yours. Listen, here's a good word for all of us today. Here's something to keep in mind. We are to proclaim, not produce. Do you understand? you understand what I'm saying? God is the one who changes a person's heart. God is the one who brings a person into a relationship with him. That is not our business. We are called to proclaim. God is the one who is to produce. But, now listen, here's, here's another part of that. The command is yours, but listen to me. The consequence is theirs. The, the, those out there that, that you would be sharing Christ with, the, the consequence is theirs. Look at verse uh, 11. Look at verse 11. And any place that does not receive you or listen to you, as you go out from there, shake the dust off the soles of your feet for a testimony against them. That's odd. It was a custom, apparently. It was a custom of the Jewish people that any time they had to travel outside of Israel for business or whatever the reason would be, any time they had to travel outside of Israel... Whenever they came back, before they crossed over into the land of Israel, they were to literally shake the dust of that, of that pagan land around them because how Israel looked at everybody else. They all had false gods. They were the only ones who had the one true God. They, were, they, they would shake the dust from that pagan land off of themselves as a demonstration of the holiness, the separateness of Israel. And so Jesus takes that act... 
And he tells his disciples to do exactly the same thing. If you go up to a, to a town and they say, we don't want to hear this, get out of here. You go up to somebody and they say, I don't have time for this, I don't want to hear this. Jesus said, shake the dust, just shake this dust off your feet. So I'm just going to tell you, when Jesus told his disciples to do that, that would not have endeared his disciples to those people. I, I suspect it would have ticked them off. Because they understood that by that gesture, what Jesus was telling those disciples, by that gesture, what those disciples were saying in essence was this. Your your heart is just as hard, just as cold, just as indifferent to the truth of God as those pagan lands. And I'm shaking the dust off of you. The consequence is theirs. Now, listen to me. That does not mean, listen to me now, please do not think that that means that God is in some way uncaring about those people who would reject him. I believe that I can build a very strong biblical case that God loves and longs for people to come into a relationship with him. Now, he's God. He's sovereign. He knows who will. He knows who will. I understand all that. But I'm telling you, I believe I can build a very strong biblical case for the fact that God loves and longs for people to come into a relationship with him. Again, so many passages of Scripture that we could look at. Let me just give you three, beginning in Isaiah chapter 1. Maybe you've read this before. Come now. This is God speaking. And come now and let us reason together. In essence, God is saying, hey, come here. Come here. Sit down. Let, let's, let's talk about this. Let's think about this a minute. Though your sins are scarlet. They will be as white as snow. They are, though they are red like crimson, they will be like wool. That's what I can do for you, God says. Back again in Ezekiel chapter 18. Do I have any pleasure? Again, God speaking. Do I have any pleasure in the death of the wicked? You understand what God's saying? Do you, do you think that just because I'm God, I'm, I'm high in my... Do you think in somehow this is some, some cosmic board game that I'm playing and I spin the dice and I say, oh, oh let's... Do I have any pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the Lord God, rather than that they should turn from his way and live? Do you understand what he's saying? Man, do you think that somehow it gives me pleasure to know that these people are dying in their iniquity, dying in their sins? And one more, uh, Jesus' very famous words in Matthew chapter 23 Jerusalem, Jerusalem, as he comes over the hill and he's, he's going in Jerusalem really for the last time. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those who sent to you. In other words, he's saying, Israel, I've come to you time and time again. I've said prophet after prophet to you. How often I have longed to gather your children together. Uh, newsflash, that's God in the flesh that just said I desired to do something. I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, and you were not willing. Listen, God is not cold or uncaring, and we shouldn't be cold and uncaring either. But he is still God, whether a person comes to him or does not come to him, whether a person accepts his gift of reconciliation through his son's sacrifice or whether they do not. He is still God. He is still on his throne Yes, he loves and desires people to come into a relationship with him, but make no mistake about it, the consequence is theirs. So, if that's the case, if a person without a relationship with Jesus, and that might be someone here, that might be someone who will will watch this this program or or listen, if if you're without a relationship with Jesus Christ, then here's what that means. I think, given what we just said, here's what that means for you. Seekers of Jesus have an identity to honestly consider. And by seekers, what I mean is the person who might say, okay, I, 
I'm not just slam dunk close to this. I'm, I'm open. I, you know, there, I hear a lot of stuff. I know there's a lot of religion floating around out there. I know there's a lot of stuff said about Jesus and other people. I, but I am open. I'm, I'm willing to at least hear what somebody has to say about that. that. That's the sense in which I'm using the term seeker. A seeker of Jesus. Seekers of Jesus have an identity to honestly consider. You've you got to think about this and you're going to have to make a choice. And by the way, not making a choice is making a choice. Uh, Verse 12, they went out and preached that men should repent. He sends, he gets them all ready. He sends them out. They went out and preached that men should repent. And they were casting out many demons and were anointing with oil many sick people and healing them. Listen, I I know that the disciples didn't have much. Like I said, they got to wear the the shoes on their feet, uh, one outfit, and carry a stick. I realize that they, they may not have known what they were going to have to eat that night. They may not have known where they were going to get to lay their heads. But I can guarantee you this. I can guarantee you this. This was both a fun and exciting time in the life of the disciples. I, I'm telling you that from personal testimony. I'm telling you, this was an exciting and, a, and even to say a fun time in the life of the disciples. Because, ladies and gentlemen, listen to me. There is no greater feeling on the face of the earth than to know that you are doing exactly what God has called you to do. And that you are making a difference in people's lives. Now, I don't care how high you climb on the corporate ladder. I don't care how many zeros are in your salary. I don't care how many toys you have. I'm telling you, there is no high like the high of knowing that you are absolutely in the will of God and doing exactly what he has called you to do and making a difference in people's lives. And listen to me. <laughs> I don't know why I do that. I, I do. It's like the light clap on, clap off thing. Listen to me. You don't have to be a pastor slash preacher to make a difference in people's lives. You can make a difference at your lunch table. You can make a difference in your cubicle. You can make a difference over your internet. You can have an impact in people's lives. You really can. But there is a choice to make. And Jesus uh, makes it very clear that part of that impact includes the call for people to repent. Now, uh, many of you probably know that the word repent in the original language essentially means to turn around and go in a new direction. To turn around and go in a new direction. So, listen to me. Because I, I think there's some misunderstanding in our culture about what repent is. So repent is not just feeling bad about my sin. Wow, I wish I hadn't done that. Repent is not even just saying, I'm never going to do that again. Repent is going toward Jesus Christ. Jesus is the one who had sent them. Jesus is the one who had empowered them. And Jesus is the the message that they were to deliver to the people. There was this call to repent, to turn around and to go in this new direction. So the people had to make a choice because, listen, lots of guys had come along historically through, through the years in the nation of Israel. Lots of guys had come along. And I, I say lots, a fair number of people had come along. And, and some people might say, hey, hey, this guy's getting a following up. Maybe he's the Messiah. Maybe he's the Christ. Maybe he's the Savior. And then he would get killed and the, the, his followers would get scattered and, and that would be the end of it. And then another guy would come along and another group would, well, maybe this guy's the Christ. Maybe he's the Savior. And he would get killed and they would get scattered and that would be the end of that. Now, here comes Jesus' disciples and guess what they're saying? We found the Messiah. He's here. He's the one. So the people 
were going to have to make a decision. They were going to have to honestly look at this person and determine whether this really was the Messiah, the Savior, the Christ, or not. One of the ways that they could do that was through what we call predicted prophecy. They could do it back then. We can do it still today. Predicted prophecy. It is the act of going back and looking at passages of Scripture that were written hundreds, in some cases thousands of years before Jesus came along, that, that name specific uh, items or things that the Messiah would do or accomplish or would be involved in or would be surrounding the Messiah. Written, listen, hundreds, thousands of years before Jesus came along. And the Messiah, the one who was going to really be the one, he was going to have to fulfill every single one of these. Listen to me, every single one of these, if he misses one, he can't be the Messiah. He he can't be God in the flesh because God don't miss one. So, predicted prophecy. Let me show you a few. Now listen to me. Uh, There's People kind of go back and forth about specifically how many actual... uh, what are called messianic prophecies. How many prophecies there are specifically about the Messiah, but the number most people agree is somewhere between two to 300 are found in the Old Testament that refer to or seem to be uh, about the Messiah. I, I just want to show you 44, and I'm not even going to hit them all today. I'll show you 44. Just, I took this off a website um, that just named just a few of them, and we're going to go through it and, and then get, get to where it goes in just a minute. But, but just starting out, just some of these, uh, it starts out the Messiah, there's, it was prophesied in Genesis that the Messiah would be born of a woman. The, the implication being that, that, that the Messiah would be a man, that he would become a man. And there's also an implication there that he would be born just of a woman. Uh, the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem, Micah 5.2, uh, 400 years, I think, or so before Jesus came along. Now, now Jesus, if we're, if we're going to say that, that I'm proposing that he is the Messiah, he has no control over where he's born. I mean, unless he's God, I'm just, you know. But you understand what I'm saying? A, a, a man can't control that sort of thing. Isaiah prophesies about the Messiah being born of a virgin. Well, that's impossible. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's kind of the whole point is that God does the impossible. But anyway, uh, that he would come from the line of Abraham, Genesis. Uh, there's a fulfillment over in the New Testament passages. Uh, that he'd been a descendant of Isaac and Jacob, and they would come from the tribe of Judah, on and on. Let me uh, bring up some next group, uh, Tyler. Um, that he would spend a part or a season of his life in Egypt. We know that Jesus did that after his birth. His parents went down to Egypt. That was prophesied in Hosea 11. That a massacre of children would happen at, at Messiah's birthplace. Jeremiah prophesied about that, and we know that that happened shortly after Christ's birth when Herod tried to, to kill the Messiah, and he had all the children the male children put to death. A messenger would prepare the way for Messiah. On and on, we can go through there. On and on. Go ahead, Tyler. Yeah. <laughs> um, that he would be preceded by Elijah, meaning someone coming in the spirit of Elijah, of course, which was John the Baptist. Uh, that he would bring light to Galilee, specifically, that much of his ministry would, would, be surra- would surround the region of Galilee. Isaiah, that is 700 years before Jesus was born. Uh, that... Uh, that he would be called king, that, he, that Messiah would be praised by the little children, he'd be betrayed. Uh, did, did you know that the, even the price that was given for his, uh, for his betrayal, the, the very money given for that, that Zechariah prophesied hundreds of years before Christ come, that that money would be used to buy what's called a, a potter's field? It's exactly what happened. 
that he would be falsely accused, Psalm 35, a thousand years before, a thousand years before Jesus was even born. Uh, on and on we can go. That he'd be crucified with criminals, Isaiah prophesied that. That he would be given vinegar to drink, Psalm 69 prophesied. That his hands and feet would be pierced, Psalm 22 and Zechariah 12 prophesied that. On and on and on we can go. This is just 44. Now, watch this. Let's get to the point. I'm taking this. This is straight from... Uh, Josh McDowell's book, Evidence That Demands a Verdict. Here's what McDowell says, uh, who was a former atheist uh, who came to faith in Christ as a result of the evidence that he collected trying to disprove the existence of God. Uh, McDowell says, the following probabilities are taken from Peter Stoner's book, in, uh, Science Speaks, uh, Moody Press, 1963 taken from Science Speaks to show that coincidence is ruled out by the science of probability. The, the coincidence that one person could, could fulfill all these prophecies. You understand what I'm saying? The, these prophecies that he would have no control over. Stoner says that by using the modern science of probability in reference to just eight prophecies. Let's, let's just look at eight of them, all right? I gave you 44, there's two or 300. Let's, if we just take eight of the prophecies, watch this. We... Uh, Chance that, chance that any man might have lived uh, at that present time and fulfilled just eight of the 300 prophecies in, is one in 10 to the 17th power. Just eight of them. That would be one in that ginormous number right there. One with 17 zeros after it. One chance. Now, watch this. In order to help us comprehend this staggering probability, Stoner illustrates it, and I've used this before, but it's been a few years, by supposing that we take that dynamic, that big number of silver dollars, of silver dollars, we take that many silver dollars and we lay them on the face of Texas. Let's spread them out on the face of Texas. Stoner says that that, that many silver coins would completely cover the state of Texas, two feet deep. The entire state of Texas would be covered two feet deep in silver coins. And Stoner says, now suppose that you took one of the silver coins and you, and you marked it. You put an X on, on the coin. And you threw it into the pile the size of the state of Texas two feet deep. And you stirred it all up. And then you took one man and you blindfolded that man. And you said to that man, start walking. Walk as long as you want, as far as you want, as fast as you want. You just walk. You walk. You, go, you can take one step. You can take a thousand steps. You can walk for six years. You walk however far it takes you to walk across Texas. But at some point, whenever you feel like it, you stop. You bend over. You reach down. You scoop in and you pull out one coin. One of those silver coins, the number of which would cover the state of Texas two feet deep. What chance would he have of getting the one marked silver dollar? Just the same chance that the prophets would have had of writing only eight prophecies and having them all come true in just one man. It is predicted prophecy. Now listen to me. I, 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 wish, I wish we had time to look at all the different evidences uh, for the validity of, of, the, of, of the person of Jesus Christ and, and his resurrection. I, I wish we, we could. But predicted prophecy certainly is, is one of those that, that they could back then and that we can today look at. And it is a... It is a a piece of evidence that I don't believe any serious-minded person can, can ignore. I don't think you can look at, at science of the law of probabilities and just ignore what it says. And like I said, uh, we don't have time to look at all of them, but I, but I want to give you one more piece of evidence to consider uh, as to whether this Jesus was who he claimed to be and whether the, 
really whether the tomb really was empty. And it is exactly that. It is the empty tomb. The empty tomb. As I said, I, I am of the belief that the empty tomb is, is the, the hinge linchpin of, of Christianity. It, it's, Christianity stands or falls on what happened in that tomb. I, I honestly, no, uh, I don't think, and you can argue with me if you want afterwards, but I, I don't think, as far as I know, no serious-minded historian would question the fact that Jesus was a real person. That he really lived 2,000 years ago. Uh, that, he, that he got some sort of following up. And that he got in trouble with some officials. And he got put to death in, around, near Jerusalem. I, I, I honestly don't know of any serious-minded uh, historian that would, that would refute that fact. And, and I mention that because it has become popular in our culture for uh, militant atheists. It's, a, it's a kind of a new breed of atheists uh, that's kind of gained some popularity, but it has become uh, in vogue with militant atheists to just kind of throw that claim out there. Well, you know, we really don't have that much uh, evidence that Jesus ever even lived. Honestly, I'm not, I mean, I'm just telling you, the person that makes that claim is either completely ignorant of, of the historical data that is available or they are intentionally deceptive because they figure most people aren't going to check anyway. The empty tomb. It is the crucial statement, truth, of this entire thing. Now, if you think I'm I'm overstating that, I want you to look at the Apostle Paul's words in uh, 1 Corinthians 15 when he says, now, if we preach that Christ has been raised from the dead. Now, watch, watch this logic now. If we preach that Christ has been raised from the dead, how is it that some of you are saying that there is no... No such thing as resurrection of the dead. There were some people apparently in the church in Corinth that were saying, you know, let's not get caught up in that whole resurrection of the dead thing. Jesus taught us some good stuff and we ought to be good people and we ought to help people. Let's just, do, let's just focus on that. Paul apparently is not satisfied with that. And so he says, well, how is it that some of you are saying that there's no resurrection uh, from the dead? Now watch this. If there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ has not been raised. And if Christ was not raised, the message which we preach has zippo, nada, nothing in it. There's no value. There's no significance to it. There is nothing in our faith either. And we are found guilty of lying about God. For we've testified that he raised Christ from the dead, whom he did not raise, if indeed the dead are never raised. For if the dead are never raised, Christ has not been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith, I like the way the Williams translation puts it here, your faith is a mere delusion. You are still under the penalty of your sins. See, it all comes down to the empty tomb. The fact that he lived in Israel roughly 2,000 years ago, that he gathered a fairly significant following, that he got in trouble with officials, and that he was put to death, that is as certain, I, I believe you can say that is as certain as any ancient event or person can be. It is what happened in the tomb or didn't happen in the tomb. That everything hinges on. Okay? All right. Um, let, let's, let's look at uh, a couple of facts dealing with that. First, his body was gone. His body was gone. Like I said, most honest historians would say, yeah, he lived. Yep, he got in trouble. Yeah, he got killed. His body was gone. Now, um, Bart, uh, Dr. Bart Ehrman, Ehrman who is a professor of religious studies, 
our New Testament studies at UNC Chapel Hill, uh, Ehrman says that, well, uh, probably what happened was that Jesus uh, just got dumped into a common grave like any common criminal, and that's why uh, nobody knew where the body was, why nobody could find the body. Now, to that, I would say, first off, there's nothing common about Jesus. Uh, he, he had stirred, as, as, as we clearly get from the historical record, he had stirred all of Israel up with his teaching. All of Jerusalem was abuzz when he came into town. Everybody knew that he was there. And so it's not like he's just flying under the radar and he's just another common criminal. I, 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 don't, I don't think that would, that would fly. I don't think you could say that. But also to that, I, I would say that the religious leaders had insisted on Pilate putting guards at the tomb. Do you remember why? Because the religious leaders, sometimes I think they were paying better attention than his disciples. His religious, the religious leaders knew of Jesus' claim that if he was killed, he would rise again on the third day. They knew that. And so they insisted that Pilate put guards at the tomb. So whether they intend it to or not, those religious leaders, those guys that put Jesus to death, unwittingly become some of the greatest evidence that we have for the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Because if anybody would have known where that tomb was, it would have been the religious leaders. They would have known exactly where that body was laid. Uh, his body was gone. It, it was just, it's just gone. Here's the second uh, idea. He was seen by eyewitnesses. Eyewitness? I understand in a court of law, eyewitness testimony can be questioned, can be, but, but it's hard to, to underscore or downplay the significance of eyewitness testimony. And Jesus was seen by eyewitnesses. Besides the, the original disciples, the Apostle Paul tells us this in 1 Corinthians 15. He was buried, he was raised from the dead on the third day, just as Scripture said. He was seen by Peter and then by the twelve. And after that, he was seen by more than 500 of his followers at one time. Most of whom are still alive. Peter's, I, I think Paul is building a defense right there. He's saying, listen, you, you, don't got, you can go check it out. They're still alive. Go ask them. Most of whom are still alive, though some have died. Now listen, can I just tell you this? Some people have said... Oh, come on. You can't, really, you can't really trust that eyewitness testimony because, uh, you know, they're, they're his believers. They're his disciples. They, they had something to gain from this. And so, sure, they're going to say he rose from the dead. Would somebody please, in the name of Jesus, <laughs> would somebody please tell me what these disciples had to gain from this? I've been waiting for years for any skeptic, one skeptic, some skeptic to give me some evidence, some body of proof that these guys gained one iota of physical material benefit from claiming that Jesus had come back to life. Honestly, most of them were rejected by their families, ended up dead or thrown in prison, lost their property as a result of claiming that they had seen Jesus alive. There is not a shred of evidence that these disciples or this whole 500, so it's not a shred of evidence that any one of them had a single prophet from declaring that Jesus was alive. But I can show you and give you a mountain of evidence that there was a ton of loss for them by standing up and declaring that Jesus was alive. By the way, this has also been thrown out. This is also one of the things that, that perhaps the 500 eyewitnesses that saw Jesus, perhaps they had a simultaneous hallucination. 
They, they all, I'm, I'm telling you, it's been, it's been suggested that they all wanted to see Jesus so bad. They wanted to believe so bad that he was alive. Now, never mind all the lost that, they, that we just talked about. If, if they stand up and say, yeah, we saw him. But forget all that for a minute. That they so wanted it to be true that they hallucinated. They just all saw it. I, I love the way Lee Strobel uh, answers. He's another apologist. He was a former atheist who came to faith from the evidence uh, he's written books like The Case for the Christ, Case for Easter, Case for Creator. Uh, I love the way uh, Strobel uh, answers this. He says, uh, I went to a psychologist friend and said, if 500 people claim to see Jesus after he died, is it possible uh, it was just a hallucination? He said, hallucinations are individual events. If 500 people have the same hallucination, that's a bigger miracle than the resurrection. <laughs> He was seen. He was, it's, you, can't, you can't just say, well, I don't believe that eyewitness. Okay, but it doesn't mean that the eyewitness account is not valid. I realize it occurred 2,000 years ago. I, I realize we can't just pull up the video on this one. But you can, you're intelligent people. You look fairly intelligent to me. You can pull up the pieces of information. You can piece them together and, and figure out where this thing is going. His body was gone. He was seen by eyewitnesses. And let me give you one more in reference to the empty tomb. Uh, the world was changed. Listen, there's just, there's just no way around this. There's no other way to explain this. The world was changed. Beginning with those original disciples who were cowering in fear and hiding up in some upper room, who, who turned into radical proclaimers of Jesus, starting with them and within just, listen, Historically, we know this historically, within just a few weeks after the, the cross of Christ, within just a few weeks, thousands, thousands were coming to faith in him. And the gospel went out and it began to spread uh, throughout that region, throughout the, all around the Mediterranean Sea. And by the time you come to the end of the first century, the message of Jesus Christ, it started out this tiny little message with this one guy with just a little band of followers, this message of Jesus had had virtually gone to the entire civilized world and was spreading out beyond that. Hundreds of millions have trusted Jesus Christ as their personal Savior, not as a result of force or coercion, as some religions do. And I know there's some background, some historical background about Christianity about that, but, but believe me when I tell you, that was not Christianity. That was not true Christianity did that. Without coercion, without force, without threat of death, Hundreds of millions have come to trust Christ. And with those commitments to Christ, listen to me, with those commitments to Christ came a level of, of humanity that mankind has never seen. Listen to me. I, I, I don't. More hungry people have been fed. More naked people have been clothed. More homeless people have been sheltered. More sick people have been attended to. More wells have been dug. More hospitals have been built. More children have been taught. More good has been done in the name of Christianity, in the name of Christ, than all the other religions and isms and movements in the world combined. The world was changed as a result of this. Does that in itself prove that Jesus rose from the dead? Maybe not by itself, but when you piece these things together, you come to this, I think you have to come to this place where you say, listen, i got to make a choice here. This, this is pretty compelling evidence that he was who he said that he was. Can I tell you this? And we're gonna, I know, it's, I know it, we're going to go into the Lord's Supper. and The Jesus movement, for all intents and purposes, from a human perspective, the Jesus movement should have ended at the cross. Kill the, 
movement of the leader and you, you kill the movement. That's, that's usually how it works. And can I say this? It would have ended there had it not been that three days later the ground shook, the stone was rolled away, and the Son of God stepped out alive with the keys of death and hell in his hand. And with this, with this charge, John chapter 6, verse 40. Look, let your eyes fall on this. If you're here and you're this whole Jesus thing, you don't know. John chapter 6, verse 40. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him will have eternal life. And I myself will raise him up on the last day. Let me leave you with uh, one more uh, quote. This is from Timothy Keller in his book, The Reason for God, Belief in an Age of Skepticism. Uh, Tim Keller says, if Jesus rose from the dead, then you have to accept all that he said. I mean, that, really? I mean, that's kind of it. If the guy came back to life after three days, if that don't prove he's God, I don't know what does. If Jesus rose from the dead, you have to accept all that he said. If he didn't rise from the dead, then why worry about any of what he said? That is so true. The issue on which everything hangs is not whether or not you like his teaching, but whether or not he rose from the dead. If he did, then the command is yours. The consequence is theirs, but the command is yours. And if you're here without a relationship with Jesus Christ, you have a choice to make. Thanks, Pastor. Well, as you heard today, if you are a follower of Jesus, you have a message to stand and deliver. Not everyone will believe that message. As a matter of fact, Pastor Clay pointed out, most people won't even accept the message. But we're responsible for proclaiming. God is responsible for producing His followers. If we share the message of Jesus, the consequences are on those we share with and how they respond to that message. If you're not a follower of Jesus, you've got an identity to consider. If Jesus wasn't who He claimed to be, if He didn't rise from the dead, then none of this really matters. But if it is true, and as you've heard today, there is a significant amount of evidence to believe that it is true, then you need to carefully and honestly consider the claims of Jesus Christ. Your eternal destiny is riding on this one. We're glad you joined us for this week's Crosswalk. Each week, Pastor Clay opens the Bible and brings out its exciting and practical truths to apply to our everyday lives. Cross Culture Church is a new church in North Raleigh, but instead of religion, we're about relationships. And instead of rituals, we practice realness. We meet Sunday mornings at 1030 at the Leesville Road High School, a mile and a half south of I-540, exit 7. And we welcome anyone who is looking for a place to learn about God's plan for their life. At Cross Culture Church, we experience the liberating, satisfying, life-changing power of the cross. And it's our desire to bring that power to a culture in need of freedom, hope, and joy. We hope you'll come join us on a Sunday morning. We'll save a seat for you. I'm not the water, I'm not the bread, but I know the place where your soul is fed. So hungry and thirsty, come and be blessed. I want to lead you to the cross. Culture Church, taking the cross to our culture and taking our culture to the cross. Visit us online at crossculturelife.org.